Go ahead and open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 3. We are at Romans chapter 3, lesson 13. We've made it all the way to chapter 3. And um, we know this. We know that Paul, in, in our previous lessons and the, the scriptures that we have covered, he spent a good time, a lot of effort establishing uh, many things. Uh, but he has, in our last several studies, been establishing the fact that all unredeemed sinners, both Jews, Gentiles, that they will face God's judgment if they pass from this life in their state of sin. And on the heels of last week's lesson, uh, he, he told the Jewish believers, and it's not going to count for anything. Remember I told you last week, you could tell that he was, he was uh, really anticipating what they may be thinking after he's been teaching this gospel of grace through faith um, as he started this letter. And he reminded them or warned them that their religious titles, their religious knowledge, and their religious rituals weren't going to count for anything on that day of judgment. Uh, just because they were Jew and just because they had received the law and just because they had gone through the ritual of circumcision, he was letting them know that the playing field is level. Uh, we, we're all sinners, and we're going to see this in chapter 3. He's really going to go into this, um, that, that we're all sinners apart from Christ, and we're all uh, wicked and depraved. And so in tonight's lesson, what we're going to see is he is going to anticipate uh, the potential accusations that are going to come from the religious people who might have been brought up in that Jewish realm like he was. And every, every time he gets to one of these things, it's very obvious because we're going to see in, in the odd verses, uh, we're going to be looking at the potential accusation that he's anticipating, the even verses. He's going to denounce that possible accusation. So we're going to use some terms tonight. Some of you may be familiar with those terms. Some of you may not be familiar with those terms, but that's what we're here to do. We're here to learn. And so when we look at this tonight, as we see Paul anticipating uh, these accusations of him now having bad theology from people who were brought up under a certain way or certain understanding, um, he's going to not only say that, that this is not so, um, he's going to denounce the, these things that we're going to talk about tonight, as should we in our Christian lives, because these are things that we face as well uh, oftentimes. So Romans chapter 3, and we're going to get started, it says this in verse 1. We'll be reading to verse 8 tonight. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? There's a question mark there. He knows this question is going to come up much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our righteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? The question that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? The second part of that question. And he says, I'm using a human argument. Verse 6, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? That's that person. Well, if, if my sin makes God look better in the end, won't it be good for both of us? He says this, why not say 
as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. So as we look at this, we're going to see, and in your outline that you have, we're going to see first the potential accusations that Paul anticipated. As I've already said, we're going to see those in these odd number verses. So the first one that we're going to look at is from verse 1, and he poses the question, what advantage then is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? He knows this. He knows that the stance that he has already taken for the gospel of Jesus Christ thus far has the potential to bring upon himself the accusations um, that he is somehow anti-Semitic in his theology, meaning this, that, that he has a, a despisal now or a hatred for the Jews uh, since he has been converted to Christianity. Please understand this. Paul, when he was Saul, was this devout Jewish leader, and he was climbing the religious ladder, and he was on his way, as the religious world defines it, to success and even notoriety very educated in that religion. In fact, we know this. When we first meet him in Scripture, he is persecuting Christians in the name of the Jewish faith. He is seeing Christians as a threat to everything that he's ever learned and everything that he believes. And now, all of a sudden, he just made a statement in our lesson last week that said all that counts for nothing. All that is not going to save you. All of your, your, your religious traditions and your rituals all the things that have happened in the past, those things aren't going to count for anything on Judgment Day. So he knows this. He knows that there are going to be those people who think that he is anti-Semitic. We, and we know the term anti-Semitic because of the things that we have seen in recent history uh, with Hitler and the things that he did to the Jew. But we can go back and we can trace these things uh, many times in the history of the Jewish people. We know that the Babylonians hated them. The Egyptians hated them. The Persians hated them. Uh, we, we can go on and on, and we can think of different people groups and individuals, be they huge nations or small little groups of people and sects. Uh, they, they have hated God's people. And Paul is making it very clear, and we'll make it clear in just a moment, he's making it clear that I know that, that you're going to accuse me of turning my back completely on the Jew as many have done throughout history. He anticipated of being accused of being anti-Jewish in his teaching. And let me just say this. This is the farthest thing from the truth. As we continue to go through Romans, we're going to see that there is a connection that many times we miss. How many of you understand this? That were it not for the Jew, we wouldn't have a Savior. We're going to talk a lot about that in just a moment when Paul defends his stance against any anti-Semitic accusations that he would have faced. Um, the reason that he understands that this question is coming, I believe, is because of who he is and where he came from. Can you imagine? Did, did you know this? He thought the same thing about the Christians that he was persecuting just years before this, uh, that they had begun to hate the Jew and accuse the Jew Un unlawfully and wrongly. And so he knew everything that he was going to be accused of because, frankly, he had probably already accused Christians of the same thing. And so he starts off 
with the uh, giving the understanding that he knows the potential accusation that he's going to be called anti-Jew or anti-Semitic in his theology. We see secondly, uh, when we skip to verse 3, we're going to come back to the even verses and we're going to give his definite rebuttals or his denunciation of these things. But I want you to have a clear understanding. There are people today who hate Jews, um, still today, simply because they're Jews. Uh, and, and all reality is this, they hate God. They don't really hate Jews uh, because usually these people who hate Jews hate them because God has blessed them even in spite of all their persecution and all the tyranny that they have faced throughout history. So in all essence, these people are God-haters, not Jew-haters. Uh, they just point it toward the Jew because there's someone tangible who they can point it toward. So we read on, we'll skip to verse 3, and we'll come back and we'll catch verse 2 in a second. I know this is a little different. We're going to cover it all. He says in verse 3, What if some did not have faith? Would their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? What if some didn't have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Now, he's going to talk about something that if you study theology very long, and what he's getting at is the potential accusation that some are going to bring against him, that he is a guy who believes in what we would call in modern theological circles replacement theology. Um, and he's saying this, uh, our faithfulness, has really nothing to do with God's faithfulness. Just because Israel has been unfaithful to God, I'll, I'll promise you this, he hasn't been unfaithful to them, nor will he ever be unfaithful to them. And he's going to get to that when we get to the even verse that goes along with this in, in, in just a moment. But he's talking about the potential accusation that he would have thrown at him, the accusation that he is a person who believes in what we would call replacement theology, uh, meaning this. That um, and it's another word you may see in theological realms is a word called supersessionism, and it's the same thing. Supersessionism in replacement theology means the same thing. It comes down to the basic idea that the church has replaced Israel as God's chosen people. That Israel missed out on what God had done for them. They missed out on Jesus, and and so in missing out on that, uh, God's plan has now shifted completely away from them. And they are discarded, and his plan has now shifted toward the Gentile, and the Gentile has replaced the Jew. Paul knew that he was going to face this accusation. We'll talk in a moment why this is totally not right biblically. Uh, but he knew he would face this. He anticipated being accused of being one of these people who now said and thought and taught and believed that the Jew missed their chance, their chance is over. And we have now been replaced by this new group of people who come from the Gentiles. Um, we know this. That's not true. We'll talk about why in a moment. It's very important that we understand, and it's very important to me that you understand, uh, replacement theology is not biblical in the whole context of Scripture. Why? Because we would have to erase God's faithful promises that have not been fulfilled yet and we're not going to do that because I promise you this, they're going to be fulfilled. Why? Because he promised that they would. It has nothing to do with the faithlessness of Israel and has everything to do with the faithfulness of God. So this idea of replacement theology was, and unfortunately still is, alive and well in many theological circles. Even theological circles and even like-minded people that I know 
uh, in evangelical circles, and, and I believe this, I believe they dismiss the big picture in this in understanding uh, the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament as one article of canonized Scripture um, where it contains the Jews, their promises, the Gentiles, their promises, and the faithfulness of God who makes all of those promises come to pass in the end. So um, be familiar with that term replacement theology. Paul felt that he might be accused of this, that because the Jews weren't faithful, that that means God's not faithful to what he's saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. We'll get to that in a moment. So we go to verse 5, the next odd verse in this passage. Odd meaning number, not odd strange. He says, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? And he says, I'm using a human argument. He's saying, I'm saying these things so that you can get it. He's saying, well, I know this. I know that because I have preached grace through faith and that alone, I'm going to be potentially accused of antinomianism. Again, another big theological word. I don't want to bore you with these things. I just want you to be familiar with them and to know what they mean. He, he was anticipating that potential accusation of antinomian theology. Um, antinomian, a very simple uh, Greek compound word, antinomus, and that means this, against law. It was the false idea that in Christ there are no longer any moral laws that govern God's people, and there are no moral laws that Christians are expected to obey. Now, I don't have to tell you, hopefully, that that's false. However, it is still very prevalent even in today's church. Paul understood and he knew that he was going to be accused of saying this. He anticipated it. He anticipated the people saying, well, well, what about what God has told us? And what about his commands? And what about the things that God has laid out in Scripture for us based on the things that we've learned our whole life? Um, and so we're going to see this, that these antinomian doctrines where we say there's no law at all, there's no commands that apply, we really don't have to do anything. You'll hear it a lot today, that Christianity is not a set of rules. Right? We're free because of grace. Well, yes and no. Yes, you are free because of grace. However, the Word of God has still been given to us to govern our lives. And you notice that Jesus himself tells us that if we love him, we'll obey what he commands. Now, we'll talk more about that in a little while, but Paul anticipated these people coming at him, um, making these charges against him that he was anti-Semitic, that he now hated the Jew because he has embraced this new Christianity. Um, he felt that he could anticipate the potential accusation of being accused of being a supersessionist, meaning that he believed in replacement theology, that God was done with the Jew and was now only working in the lives of the Gentile believers. But then he also felt that he could anticipate because he spoke so openly and strongly about God's grace um, that there would be those people that are going to accuse him of just doing bad and giving people a license to do bad just so grace can be big. Now, we're going to see this. that That's not all at all. In fact, I'm going to reference Romans a lot because he covers all of these multiple times as you study uh, the letter to the Romans. 
So we see this, that he brought up the potential accusations that he anticipated were coming his way and that people were saying he may have already known. In fact, he probably did. He probably had already gotten word uh, about what people were saying of him and what they were accusing him of. Or he just knew that from his past, um, this is the way that people were going to react. So what he does, he then in these even verses, in these, the next section that we're going to look at, we see the denunciation of these potential accusations. Uh, Paul is going to openly tell them, I'm not anti-Semitic. He's going to openly tell them, I am not for replacement theology or supersessionism. And then he's definitely going to tell them, I am not an antinomianist. I am not against God's commands. And we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at some scripture to tie all that together to see that he wants to establish all of this before we get into where he goes um, for the remainder of chapter 3. And he's going to then even level the playing field more. This is where we're going to see the things that we've heard before. Uh, there's none righteous, no, not one. And we're going to understand that a little better. But before we do this, he's going to, he's going to counter these accusations that he feels he might uh, encounter. And he's going to um, denounce these accusations before uh, they've ever been made potentially or to answer uh, maybe to the ones who have been making these accusations and it's gotten back to him. We see the denunciation of these potential accusations. Verse 2, in looking at anti-Semitism, Paul says in verse 2, after asking the question, what advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision, what does he say? Much in every way, exclamation point. He's very adamant about that. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. He reminds the listeners that the Jews were important in God's providence and plan. God's very word, his commands, his law, all of the prophecies that we see even pertaining to the Messiah. He's saying the Jew are they are very important because they have been entrusted with these things. Not only that, they are very important because Jesus our savior himself came from their lineage. He is from their people. This is the path that God chose to bring him through to enter into this world to be the Savior of all of those who would believe. And we know this first for the who? Jew. Then for the Gentile. So as we look at this, we see that Paul is definitely denouncing any accusations of anti-Semitism that he would hate the Jew or turn his back on the Jew or not no longer want to have his connections to the Jews. He's saying they're very important. God's word, the revelation of his glorious gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of these things were foretold through the Old Testament scriptures by the Jewish people, by the Jewish prophets, to the nation of Israel. Please understand that. There is something very important, and it is the providence of God that allowed that to happen, and we're not to take any other stance in trying to understand this. They're not to be hated. They're not hated by God, right? We, we know that we had a season in church history of anti-Semitism where even so-called Christians were hating the Jews because they crucified Christ. Can I tell you this? The Romans crucified Christ, right? Remember the story? Yeah, we know this. We know in, according to God's sovereign plan, the Jews turned Christ over to be crucified because it was according to God's plan and his providence. It had to be that way. 
He came unto his own, and they recognized him not. Listen, that's in our best interest as Gentiles. Please understand that. Anybody thankful that God extended his grace and his mercy to the Gentiles? Yeah. So when we look at this, we have to see that Paul is not advocating anti-Semitism. He's saying the Jew has a very important part in God's greater plan. Y'all do this. If you don't believe me, just take your Bible, right, and go to, well, let's really do this. Go to Acts. And let's go, uh, let's go all the way to, well, let's see, Acts. Go to 10. Put your finger there. Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision. This has to do with a man named Cornelius that he's about to meet, right? He was a what? Gentile. Now, do this. Here's your Bible. Hold it like this. All of this, Jewish. This, that's where you got in on the deal. Y- y'all do that little experiment. You, you, you can't be anti-Semitic. You, you can't say that God, he, he doesn't care about the Jew. In fact, he used the Jew to bring us into these promises. So please understand that. When we look at this, Paul is standing his ground and he's saying, guys, that's the furthest thing from the truth. That's not what I am. In fact, even Paul himself, we know this in Romans chapter 11. We're going to get there. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because when we get there, we are going to spend some time there. But I have to go to Romans chapter 11 and look at some things that he said. He says in Romans 11:28, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies. He's talking about the Jews on your account. But as far as election is concerned, watch this. They are loved on account of the patriarchs for God's gifts. And his call are, say it with me, class, irrevocable. Please understand, God still has a love for Israel, a deep love that we really can't fully understand because it is an everlasting love. We see it written about in Scripture. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 31, in case you want some Old Testament ammo tonight. Look at verse 3. It says, The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Talking about Israel. I have drawn you with loving kindness. I will build you up again, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go out to dance with the joyful. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. There will be a day when watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim, Come, let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. Now, I want to remind you of something that has not happened and has not happened throughout history since Jeremiah prophesied this. So I'll tell you this. The Jews are still important to God. He has an everlasting love and an everlasting covenant with these people. Paul was not saying, turn your back on them. He was not saying to those Jewish believers here in Rome, hey, just just forget about all the Jewish things. Now, he's definitely not going to tell the Gentiles to become Jewish in their beliefs either. But what he's saying, he's saying, 
we can't hate, we can't discard these people because these people have been greatly used by God for God's greater glory and His greater plan to usher in salvation to all who will believe. So he denounces anti-Semitism. He goes on in verse 4, again, looking at the even verses now. Verse 3 said, what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Here's Paul's answer, his rebuttal, his denunciation of replacement theology that so many people want to believe in. Not at all. He says, not at all, exclamation point. So he said it like this, not at all. It's not happening. Watch what he says. Let God be true and every man a liar. Why? Because we're unfaithful and he's faithful. So that, because it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Anyone here ever been right every time you've spoken? Right in all the judgments that you've made? Truthful in all the things that came off of your lips. You haven't. You don't understand that. God has. He's faithful to everything that he promises. I believe this. I believe that men want to believe in replacement theology because they still think God operates like they do. God is not going to promise the Jewish people something and not fulfill that promise. Please understand this. Did he promise that the throne of David will last forever? Huh? Like this. Was the throne of David an earthly throne? Or a heavenly throne? No, where did it exist? Earth. Where will the throne of David exist forever? Earth in Jerusalem, where it's supposed to be. So please understand that. There is going to be a fulfillment of these things that are going to happen that have been promised. Paul is denouncing replacement theology here. He reminds the Romans that God is always faithful to carry out his promises. Why? We know this. We can read the New Testament. We know this. Titus says this. God who does not lie. He's never told a lie. He's never made a promise that did not come to pass. He is faithful to all that he covenants and all that he promises. God's promises to Israel and his future salvation. Did you know this? He promises them future salvation. But they've done all of this, and he still will raise up a remnant. I promise you this, at least 144,000. I can show you. I can give you scripture document, scriptural documentation of it. You say, well, how do you know those 144,000 are the Jews? Because the Jehovah Witnesses say they're the Jehovah Witnesses. I got news for the Jehovah Witnesses. It says 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. I'm not a great mathematician, but 12,000 times 12 is 144,000. And he says they're from the 12 tribes of where? Israel. So thank you very much. There will at least be 144,000. And there will be more than that because that's 144,000 who will be on fire for Christ. Understanding this half and now understanding this half. They'll have a greater understanding of the whole and they will be warriors in evangelizing their people in the latter days. So please understand that. Um, he's saying, I don't believe, nor would I ever promote replacement theology. So stop making these accusations. God is faithful to what he's promised. He is truth, and everything else is a lie. His promises remain. His faithfulness will not let Israel falter. Romans chapter 11, going back there, backing up a little bit to verse 25. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not 
be conceded. Israel has experienced a hardening in part. Complete hardening? What does he say? In part. Until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take their sins from them. Think about that for a second. He's letting you know there. Paul is reminding even the same group of people later on in this letter. He's still got a plan for Israel. He's not done with them yet. They haven't been replaced. Ephesians chapter 3. He says this in verse 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in any other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of, to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, right? Members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So he is letting you know that we, as Gentiles, are sharers with the promises that he's already made Israel. The salvation that Jesus came here to pay for and to bring to this earth, watch this, pay attention, first for them, then for us. We have been engrafted into their promises. So if their promises have ceased in the idea of replacement theology, so have ours. So have ours. That's what Paul just told us when we read that in Ephesians. We also see if we read in Luke, if you don't want to just take Paul's word for it, we'll look at Jesus giving a little prophecy. This prophecy here, we know if you've studied for any amount of time any prophecy, we see this as a pattern that we see in a lot of the Old Testament prophets. They would give a near prophecy, something that was going to happen soon, that would also correlate with a far prophecy, something that was going to happen later. Jesus uses this same prophetic language here in Luke 21, verse 20. He says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, we know this, the near prophecy that he was speaking of was 70 AD when Jerusalem was surrounded by the armies of Rome. He says this, you will know that its desolation is near. But he's also talking about that far prophecy when the armies of the world are going to surround God's holy city. Please understand, he goes on, he says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. Watch. There was a persecution that came upon the Jews in 70 AD. That was the near prophecy. There is a time of tribulation that is going to come upon the Jews. We know this in the end, according to what I believe. In the end, and what Scripture says, there will come upon them a great tribulation before the millennial kingdom is established. And so we see he gives that near prophecy. 
70 A.D., again, and that far prophecy, that time of tribulation. He said how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the, distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Watch this. Near prophecy, continuing prophecy, all the way to that far prophecy. Did you notice that piece of land has been trampled on by the Gentiles since then? Did you know this? The Temple Mount that is so sacred to the Jews, they can't even ascend to the Temple Mount because it is controlled still even to this day by the Gentiles. So please understand that. We know that they are going to have their time, their time of restoration. You know when this is going to happen. If you study Scripture in its entirety, Jesus is going to come back for what we know as the millennial reign, a thousand-year period. And the throne of David is going to be established upon this earth, and the Jew is going to dwell with their Messiah forever. That is why we can look back at Isaiah 53, the Jews in that moment are going to look back at Isaiah 53, and they're going to see this, just as Isaiah did. Surely he bore our iniquity. Surely he went to the cross and he died for us. Surely he is the Savior who came to rescue those of us who are sinners. They're going to see that as we all have seen it being revealed to us on this end. They are going to see it on that end. And the promises of salvation for Israel and the remnant that God is going to sovereignly raise up in them, I promise you, they're going to be fulfilled. And all of those believing, redeemed Jews will dwell with God in Jerusalem as Jesus is there on his throne for a thousand-year period. The interesting thing is, we will return with him, having already been, and I'm still one of these guys who believe in it, raptured up because the church has already been taken out because we are the believers. Now, who does that consist of? The Gentile church or the church that's made up of all believers, be they Jew or Gentile? Yes, all of those who come to Christ before this day that Jesus said is going to come in the end. So, now we're not here to talk eschatology tonight. You may agree with that. You may not. I don't really care. Uh, that's not what we're here to talk about tonight. One way or the other, you want to talk about it? We can. It's fun. Um, but when we look at the big picture of things, many people who don't understand or don't want to believe in the rapture, premillennial reign, uh, the, the millennial reign, they, they don't want to believe in these, uh, the premillennial rapture, excuse me, in the millennial reign. They don't want to believe in these things because a lot of these guys a lot of times are replacement theologians. They think the Jews have already missed their opportunity. That's why they don't want to believe these things. That's why they can't entertain them. But I'll tell you this, if the Jew missed their opportunity, then the Jew's opportunity was based solely upon the Jew and not based on the providence and the promises of a faithful God. And I'll tell you this, according to Scripture, that's not the case. All of us will be saved by faith in God and His power to save, nothing else. So even as Paul addressed this, does, does our faithlessness make God any less faithful? Absolutely not. Paul's making very clear, I don't, I don't 
condone and I denounce replacement theology. Jesus does the same as he shows us, and he could if he wanted to spend all the time on this, but that's not our lesson tonight, many areas where we see Jesus himself pointing to the redemption of God's holy people, the Jew, who he chose way back uh, when he came to Abram and he made a covenant with him. Now, covenants don't get erased. Please understand that, especially covenants made by God. Uh, They are everlasting covenants. And so we're going to see that Israel will have the salvation that has been promised to them all the things that the prophets foretold in regard to Israel that are going to happen on this earth, are you listening, will happen on this earth just as Scripture says uh, that it's going to happen. They will have an earthly king. Don't you remember when Jesus came on scene, Hosanna, 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 blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were looking for an earthly king. Do you know why they were looking for an earthly king? It's not because they were in error. It's because this section of the Scriptures told them to look for an earthly king. Now, according to God's providence, it was his will that they miss him this first time to usher in grace and mercy to the Gentiles. And, watch this, they're still going to see their promise of the earthly king fulfilled and they are going to bow down and they are going to worship him in the city of Jerusalem, in that holy city where his throne, the throne of David, will be. I promise you, for a thousand years they're going to get to enjoy their Messiah been promised to them. So, we see that Paul denounces replacement theology. And then we see this. When we get to antinomianism, Paul in verse 6, in his denunciation of antinomianism, he asks in verse 5, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? Isn't it a good thing if we sin so bad that it makes God look even that much more gracious? He says, certainly not. Certainly not. This is consistent with what Paul would have said. We know later on in Romans chapter 6, shall we sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. No, we shouldn't sin just to abuse grace. In fact, someone who really understands grace is not going to do that. He goes on and he says, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, because we learned what? We learned just a few weeks ago about judgment. He was judging their what? Deeds. Right? Their deeds were either righteous or their deeds were unrighteous, and there were no in-between. The only way that we can do righteous deeds is how? Jesus himself said it. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. He was talking about righteous deeds, bearing good fruit. You can't do it. When you're apart from Christ, all you can do is bear bad fruit. Those deeds that come out of your life, apart from Christ, and you are unrepentant, you haven't believed and trusted in Him, you will be judged for your deeds. Every law that you have ever broken, you will stand before God as a transgressor. Please understand that. He says, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, right? He's already anticipating these things. I told you that. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, why am I still condemned a sinner? We see what he answers. Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. Anybody who says, let us do evil so that good may result, their condemnation is deserved, he said. But he's saying this. That's not what we're saying. 
that's, that's, that's everything that we're opposed to. We're not antinomian in our theology. Grace is freedom from sin. It's not freedom to sin. Paul was making that very clear because people, even in today's time, still get that a little mixed up, don't they? Right? Grace is for Saturday so that I can receive forgiveness on Sunday. Huh? Don't let the conviction be so obvious. But isn't that the way people live their lives? Paul's saying absolutely not. Grace is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Willful, unrepentant sin and the abuse of grace is never, ever, ever, nor will it ever be accepted by a holy God or will it be accepted according to His holy word or His very nature. Romans chapter 6, as I've already told you, Paul said it. What shall we say then? Verse 1, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death and we were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So how can you have an old life of sin and then say you have a new life and it still be sin? Can't, can you? No, your, your life cannot be dominated by your habitual sin as it once was. Paul is saying we're not going to be the people who take grace and say just because we have it, we're going to live any way that we want. He's saying no, we're called to live a new life, right? All the old what is gone, and behold, all things are new. We know that. They're made new in Christ. We're a new creation. Galatians tells us this. He's talking about living by the Spirit. So I say live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. I love that because he didn't say you won't have the desires of your sinful nature. He said you won't live by them and gratify them. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. We know that. When we're in the flesh, are we doing what we want to do as believers? We find ourselves in sin, just like Romans chapter 7, when Paul finds himself in that predicament. The things that I don't want to do, that's what I do. The things that I don't want to do, uh, that's what I find myself doing. When we're walking in the flesh, we're going to find ourselves, what? Being tempted to sin. He goes on and he says this in this passage, and, and I want you to see this because he's going to define for us the difference in our natures. He says the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you. Sound, sound like somebody who's antinomian in his beliefs? I warn you. Listen to me. I'm not saying that those things are okay. That's your old nature. I am understanding that you have those temptations, but those things are not okay. Just because you have grace. He says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who, the key word is, live like this. Because I know what you're going to do. You're going to do like I do and go, oh, no, man, fits of rage. I've been mad at somebody. I've been jealous. And we can go down the list, right? He says, those who live by these things. We know this, as Christians, we don't live by these things, though we may have fallen to these things in, at times in our life. We know this, as Christians, we can't comfortably embrace any of this. We can't live like this any longer. He says, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he tells us, 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. You know what he's saying? He's saying this. If you walk in the Spirit, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be obedient to the things of God. Why? Because you're going to bear things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I don't know about you, but if I'm walking in those things all the time, I'm going to have a hard time sinning. Huh? Right? When, when I want to tell somebody off, a little self-control, a little patience, right? When I want to hate somebody, love comes to the surface. Why? That's the fruit of the Spirit. Is that obedient to the commands of God? Sure it is. What, what allows me to be obedient to the commands of God? The Spirit of Christ living in me. But we can't say that it's not important that we're not obedient to the things of God. To say that obedience to the things of God is, is not important is to say that the Spirit and what He does in us and His work is not important. But His work is important because it is His Spirit that allows us to live that new life that is opposite of our old fleshly sinful nature. So Jesus said it like this, for all those who might still be antinomian in your thoughts that I'm just going to sin, sin, sin and hope that grace does abound. He says, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. If you love me, you'll obey what I command. Jesus makes it very simple for us, doesn't he? He gives us something that even Paul referred to as the law of Christ, and we see throughout Scripture that we see that statement. John reiterates the things that Jesus taught in teaching, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, this pretty much sums it all up, the law and the prophets, uh, this wraps it up. Matthew 22, if you want to go back and look at this, verse 34 through 40, and it says it, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. They tried to trick Jesus, a trick question, right? Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Understand, it encompassed 613 commandments. They weren't just talking about 10. It was over 600. And they were trying to trick him. Which one's the most important? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, heart, soul, and with all your mind. He said, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All of them. All the law, all the prophets. Jesus simplified it for you New Testament believers here, didn't he? You don't, you don't have to remember 613, right? You can just remember these two. Now, antinomian ideology would say this, that there is no moral standard and there is no code and that there is nothing that we live by. And Jesus would say, au contraire, there is. There is a greater law than the 613 commandments. There is a law that came out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. That is to love the Lord your God, and I'll make it simple, with everything you have. Love your neighbor just like you love yourself. He says this sums it all up. Now, I'll tell you this. Even you Gentiles here, here, if you're loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, you're going to inadvertently obey many, many, many commands from the Old Testament that Jesus, we know, already died, right, to pay the fact that we had transgressed in those things. But in his death and in his imputed righteousness, he has left us here so that we can practice practical righteousness. Paul's making that very clear. I'm not against God's commands. I'm not against God's word. I'm not against obedience. Nor can we be in our theology, right? We can't say, oh, I'll just go ahead and sin so that grace is that much more glorious. That's not New Testament. That's not Old Testament. 
That's not God. That's not what Jesus commanded. Antinomianism is not truth. It is against what the New Testament teaches and what Paul is teaching here. Because we know that we have come to know him if what? We obey his commands. That's not just Paul. That's John. We've seen Paul's discourse on it. We've seen Jesus. Uh, look at John. He says we, we know that we, we truly know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Right? The antinomian who says, I'm against any law, any commands, any rules. God set up rules for the Old Testament. I don't live under a set of rules. I do. I live under two rules. Love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, my mind. Love my neighbor as myself. Why? Because my master said that's what I'm supposed to do. Now, the awesome thing is this. In saving me, he freed me from the penalty that I owed, but he also freed me to live a life of righteousness and obedience to what he commanded. Not only did he free me to do that, he placed his spirit inside of me to empower me so that it would be so. Why? Because if I'm walking in the spirit, not in my flesh, right? The fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If I'm exercising those things, let me ask you this class. Am I loving the Lord with everything that I am? Loving my neighbor as myself? I told you, his spirit empowers you to do those things. So antinomianism would be contrary to that. Paul says, I'm not for that. And so when you start to accuse me of that, let me just go ahead and cut it off at the pass. This is not who I am. So we see this as believers as we wrap this up. As believers, we must realize that God still has a plan for his chosen people. Right? Anybody remember that term? We, we Anti-Semitic. We don't turn our back on them or think that they're useless or hate them. Uh, they are important people, God's chosen people, Israel. And he raised them up for his task and his purpose, and he will raise them up again to fulfill the promises that he has made to her. We must realize that as the church, those of us who are Gentiles here today, and we're believers, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we have not replaced Israel in the scheme of things. Please understand that. Ephesians tells us also that he is making one man from the two. Right? So pe people want to argue all the time about who's the bride of Christ. Those who come to Christ are his bride, right? You can put whatever label on them you want to, they're his bride. So whether they be the Gentile, whether they be the Jew, um, there is promises that he will fulfill for both, bringing them under one heading in the end, his people, to fulfill exactly what he told Abraham that he was going to do to raise up this nation from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language. And so we see that the promises to Israel are not invalid now. They are still 100% true and valid. And just because we are in the time of the Gentiles, and we are, we are in the church age, in the season, it doesn't mean that Israel won't have her day according to Scripture. Because I tell you, she will. Go, go read. I mean, Revelation, the church leaves somewhere, right? Not mentioned. And all of a sudden, it becomes all about Israel again. And I'm thankful for that. You know why? Because that's my God, and I wouldn't want him to be anything less than totally faithful. He's going to be totally faithful to them. And then we must realize, as New Testament believers, how the commands of Scripture apply to those of us who are in Christ today. It's not as if we throw away God's commands, right? 
He has empowered us to be obedient to the things that he requires of us. As we walk in the Spirit, let me just tell you this, as you walk in the Spirit, you will walk in obedience. You walk in the flesh, you're going to pick up the old nature, right? You're going to pick up sin. So, Paul anticipated these things, these accusations. He confronted these accusations. He denounced possible, um, you know, enemies coming against his theology. He said, no, here's what I believe. Here's why I believe it. And he gave us scripture to back it up. Next week, we will be moving into um, learning about that evil, even playing field a little more, that we are all unrighteous in the eyes of God. We are all sinners, and that is why Jesus Christ came to this earth, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, just as we learned way back, Romans 1.16, when Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth that it contains. God, I pray tonight that we learn something I pray tonight that maybe something in our life changed because of seeing the truth. God, I pray that we rejoice tonight as believers of knowing that you have a great plan. And that plan is not according to us. It is according to your faithfulness, your sovereignty, your majesty. God, let us rest in that. Let us rejoice in that. Lord, we pray tonight, come Lord Jesus, come. Begin the fulfillment of your promise to Israel we believe and that we know Scripture contains. Lord, set your kingdom up on this earth and set the record straight to wicked men once and for all that you truly are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the Messiah. You are the chosen one. You are the Savior of all mankind. Lord, I thank you for your grace and your mercy that you've shown me through your cross. I thank you for the gospel that was used and that was preached to open my eyes. I thank you for your spirit you quickened my spirit, made me alive when I was once dead. And I give you all the praise. Be with these men as they leave. Challenge them by your spirit to be faithful men of God in their homes, in their workplaces. And Lord, we ask that if it be your will, that you bring them back safely this Sunday, that we worship you together and thank you once again that you are our risen Savior. We love you. Again, we thank you for the privilege of being your children. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.